In episode 14 of the podcast series Behind the Screen, executive coaches Joella Brookshaw and Julian Sape meet Sue Lyberg, MBE, to discuss her work with systems that are stuck and what it means to be a change maker. So welcome everybody to podcast 14 in the series Behind the Screen. Joe, it's lovely to see you. Great to see you, Julian. Good to be back. I'm looking forward to today's discussion. So we always start with a recap of, of where we left off. So here are some thoughts on podcast 13. Our topic was systems that are stuck, family systems, workplace systems, and the role of coaches and practitioners to help these systems grow beyond their stuckness. I like the word stuckness. Uh, we looked at it uh, from a few different perspectives. Firstly, from a, a personal lens, and Joe and I had a little bit of a laugh, uh, reflecting on our, our family <laughs> systems and how they might have impacted who we are today. Uh, we looked at this work uh, from the point of view of, of how stuckness appears in the executive space. And then from a, a philosophical uh, point of view, we we took our, our helicopter view of the world we live in and how we might shift from the transactional world we know all too well and embracing a new kind of uh, connectivity. So we looked at this word connection, how it appears in business. We transact and so we connect, but also connection through relationality. So bringing more presence into our relationships, workplace or other, and through that, setting the scene for more co-creation. So that was kind of what we looked at. And, and as always, we uh, invite a guest into our podcast space uh, to expand on those themes. And I'm going to hand over to Joe to introduce our special guest today. I was thinking about who might be a suitable guest for this Stuckness podcast. And as I scrolled through my LinkedIn feed, I came across an old friend and colleague of mine, Sue Lybird, who quite coincidentally was about to present at a mindset conference. And that's really very relevant to stuckness. And I was delighted that she agreed to be our guest. And to give you a flavour of who Sue is, here's a quote from her website. I operate at the intersection of where a business is now and where it needs to be, helping senior executives rethink what they know today, refocus on tomorrow, and shape their organisations for the future. Driven by a belief when leaders know better, they do better. When business plays an active leadership role in building a better world, communities thrive, society's problems are solved, and businesses grow. So that gives you an idea about Sue. And then in more detail, her career has taken in nursing, the armed forces, where she was both a serving officer and a non-executive deputy chair. She was a former independent chair with the NHS. She has a large non-executive portfolio. She's a managing director of her own consultancy, Sage Blue, and in 2016 was awarded an MBE for services to business, charities, and voluntary organizations. So please welcome Sue Lybird. 
Hello, Sue. Hello, hello. Hello, Joella. Hi, Julian. Thank you so much for having me. And it's always very strange when you listen to people describe you, you know, it's just like, yeah, actually, that is me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's pretty impressive, Sue. But hey, you're you're Sue to me. So let's proceed in that vein. So I was in preparation for the podcast. We talked about your conviction that change happens from the inside out. And the idea of being the change maker is not something you do, but who you are. And so who are you when you work? (laughs) And how do you bring your development practice into the boardroom and non-executive work and the other way around? Mm. It's interesting because when, I don't know about you, but when people ask that question, you know, who are you? Suddenly what happens is all of those identity labels float up and it's the job titles and the descriptions and everything else. But in essence, that's about what we do, not who we are. So right at the heart, you know, listening to you asking that question of me today, who am I? I'm absolutely all about change. I'm a catalyst for change. I'm a conduit for change. Um, people show up, whether that's uh, on an individual basis or whether that's, you know, a team or an organisation um, and call upon me when they are in a place of needing change. They don't always necessarily want it, by the way. There's a difference, isn't there, between want and need, but they're in a place where they need change. And so I'm very much somebody that spends her time in the change and transformation space, whether that's as an individual, whether that's as a, you know, um, on the level of an organisation. And um, and my change, and hopefully we'll get on to speak about this, is always inspired by nature. Um, so, I, you know, who am I? I'm a biomimic at heart. Um, and I, I am inspired by nature in terms of the way in which I look at change and the way I personally do change. But one of the key things for me about who I am is I'm a person that brings coherence. So where there's chaos, I bring coherence. Where there's disruption, I bring coherence. And coherence in the terms of and within the context of physics um, you know, whereby we have the different waveforms and we have the different particles all moving around. And that when you have coherence, you bring everything together as a unified whole. So when you say, who am I? Those are the things that come to me. I'm about change. I live in the world of change. I um, um, I bring coherence where there is disruption and discomfort and, uh, and unease. Um, and I'm in somebody who's inspired by nature to help solve all of the great problems. So that's me. Mm. <laughs> got it, got it. And it sounds really um, integrated and very much who this is who I am and I can't help it. Oh, absolutely. It's a bit like breathing. You couldn't take this away. This is. Mm. That's like who you'll show up as wherever you are. So yeah, regardless of the hat on or the label or the yeah. one, I'm chairing something, leading something, speaking something. Yeah. These are core things to me, absolutely. Yeah, I think you describe it very well, Sue. Here's someone who uh, is very established in, in corporate life and organisational life, talk about nature. And, and I think we're, we're in an age now where, even despite the environmental crisis, uh, 
the, the corporate narrative might have run out of steam, whereas, whereas the natural world is unlimited. And so, I, you know, I love this idea of biomimicry, and, and we're going to unpick that a little bit. But I also like the idea of uh, molecules and particles. You know, the, the, this is all energy. It's all one big energy field. And I suppose, you know, to Joe's point, you know, recognizing your own energy field, integration within has to be a starting point. You have to be, uh, you know, in terms of one's own inner work, you have to have some kind of uh, self-regulation to be able to recognize what's going on around you as well. And I, I love the idea about bringing, <laughs> bringing some calm or, or balance um, into chaos. So how, how do you recognize, um, what, what are the telltale signs when a system, a workplace system, um, and its people uh, is stuck? What does that look like? Well, what kind of energy antennas are, are kind of firing off for you? Well, uh, you, you get it, first of all, in the language. So, of course, people will, you know, present with there's a problem that we have to solve. But invariably, the presenting problem isn't usually the problem. So it's when you start to say, tell me a little bit more. Unpack that. What do you mean by that? What's the history of that? So it starts. And so one of the things I do is listen very, very carefully. It's the paying absolute attention, which is why that coherence piece is really important. So I arrive in, in places as, you know, as coherent as possible so that I can bring all my listening and all my observation. So you hear it first in the language around how they're articulating a particular problem. And then what I do is I inquire uh, on the um, questions around how's that showing up? So what are the behaviours? So you hear whereby, for example, there are tensions between, you know, different roles and responsibilities, tensions between, um, you know, what the you know senior leadership team are asking um, the, the middle tiers to, to deliver. You're listening to the, you know, if it's a compliance issue, you know, there's been a, you know, a legislative change and therefore we have to change, or there's been a something significant that has happened in the wider society that organisations are then going, oh my gosh, we've got to respond to that. And, you know, in recent times, a classic, of course, and, and horrific experience was, you know, the death and the murder of George Floyd. So, Something happened in society and the ripples into the organisation and you can hear it, you can feel it, you can sense it, the fear, the doubt, the anxiety, the concern. So it's the articulation of a problem. And if we just listen really carefully, then you can you get it and then you can start a different conversation. The language of, of problematizing um, is in itself sort of stuck. Uh, and I think when you, you know, when you listen to people like yourself talk about um, the witnessing of what is happening, it's, it's, not about the, it's not a problem because a problem is sort of dissociated from what's real. And what's real is kind of alive. Um, and, and, and that's the starting point. So that's very powerful. Um, I think, yeah, Thomas Hubel talks about sort of reporting upset as opposed to really witnessing it. Uh, and, you know, at, at, in, in, our, in our witnessing and presence, we, we're more in our sort of heart center. And at the heart center, there isn't a problem. Uh, so, yeah, that's really powerful. Um, 
Tell us about biomimicry. I didn't know the word biomimicry before we met you. <laughs> I mean, I, know, I think I know what it means, but tell us more. Yes. Well, the thing about um, people who are followers, students, proponents of biomimicry, one of the things that um, we believe is that nature has solved all of the great problems and that if we just look to nature um, when we've got a challenge, then we can get inspiration and we can solve a lot of our human problems. Um, Nature's typically solve them. And there are some wonderful examples of how we've managed to use nature to inform and inspire the way that we do things. So some of the the more famous examples, for example, are how did we um, find out about Velcro? Well, actually, that was from somebody who was out walking in nature and all of the little um, birds that stick to, you know, your shoes and your, your trousers. And it's that stickiness. And it was just the hang on a minute. Can we create, do something with that stickiness? Um, One of my favourites is the um, uh, bullet train in Japan, Shinkansen bullet train. So, you know, fast train, having to go through, you know, uh, urban areas. The noise was a major problem. People were complaining. So they they felt they had to do something else. And it was um, an ornithologist who said, well, hang on a minute. Have you studied and had a look at... um, what kingfishers do. Kingfishers from a great height have to enter water, don't need to make a splash because all the fish will disappear. So how can they absolutely enter the water streamlined as ever, quiet as ever to, you know, to catch their prey? And it was the shape, of course, of their beaks. And uh, so the um, designers of the, you know, the bullet train, the Shinkansen train, modelled the nose on the kingfisher. And of course, what happened was, it eradicated all of the noise and the problems that they were having um, in terms of disturbing, obviously, all of those urban communities. So nature can solve some of our big problems. Mm. So I ask those questions of myself and, you know, of my clients um, and the projects that I'm involved in when we've got what feels like a, a wicked, a tricky problem is the how can nature help us answer this question? Yeah, that's wonderful. So... I love the design element, you know, the kingfisher and the bullet train. What about what about natural systems? What what can um, systems, you know, interpersonal systems uh, that are struggling uh, to find uh, balance and flow? Um, what what can those systems learn from nature? What what can you give us any examples? Well, um, I can, I think, and um, well, not I can, I think, I can. Full stop. Um, one of the, <laughs> one of the, um, I want to say species um, that I am particularly interested in is um, slime mold. Mm. And uh, slime mold. Think of slime mold. They're like amoeba. We all learned about amoeba. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you know. Back in school, single cellular organisms, um, very, very small, microscopic, and um, but they're little entities in their own right. Now, the thing about slime mold is, is that they are multicellular organisations. So they're made up of lots of amoebas. They all come together to form one body. And they form uh, an ecosystem. They operate and um, share collective intelligence and they problem solve. I mean, they are a phenomenal, phenomenal species. 
and because they think and operate as a system. So each slime mould can keep its own identity, but coming together, they form a collective to solve what is a societal problem for them. So that may well be from moving point A, from point A to point B. It's usually obviously about food source and nutrients or they're under threat. So I particularly use slime mould as a really great example. I mean, um, there's a lot of work in the way that slime mould works because they are incredibly efficient, incredibly efficient. Um, So we've seen examples of, um, you know, uh, Japanese scientists, for example, looking at their metro system and going, well, you know, Japan, one of, you know, and some of their cities are mega cities. We're talking about large populations. So how do you get the transport system working um, in a very large, for a large population? So one of the things, for example, that they did was they created, you know, they they got a map of, um, you know, the city. They put little food sources, um, in in this case, it was porridge oats, I believe, on all of the... um, the the city nodes and then what they did was they put some slime mold onto the onto the map and watched the slime mold over a period of time move and migrate so it, it went for all of the resources and what that slime mold did was replicate and improve on the existing map of the transport system so that's just an example of how clever slime mold is So when we come to our systems, family systems, workplace systems, educational systems, I like to think about how would slime mold approach this? So one of the things is, okay, where are the absolute resources? What's taking most of the resource? Where are people distracted? Where in the systems are there blockages? Where in the system are things that are barriers? Where are people stuck? One of the things that Slime Mold um, teaches us is um, it's about equity. You don't have hierarchy. And some of the things in our systems are around hierarchy. So I, it triggers me to think about, have we got hierarchy? Have we got equity? If we're planning something in terms of a, a, a system, you know, actually, have we got historic um, challenges that we're bringing into the space? Is this actually a fresh fresh space? Have we got learning? How do we use collective intelligence to support this? And speaking to your point, Julian, about um, Thomas Hubel, another witnessing, quite often what we find if we're looking at trying to sort out systems is we're talking about the system, but we don't have the users, the beneficiaries, the players who are living that system come and be part of the design solution. So inspired by slime mold it it encourages me to ask a very different set of questions and to see things a little bit differently so can nature help us with you know our stuckology as I call it in terms of systems our human systems absolutely yes it can I love that it's uh, that it's part of you know part of nature and and you know on one hand very simple you know because the answers are all there you just got to look. And, uh, you know, the slime mold, perfect um, way of sort of making it real for people. And, um, you know, slime mold probably isn't the sort of thing we would immediately think of 
in terms of <laughs> improving organizations. But hey, you know, it's also got that sense of, um, well, almost the absurd, you know, it's, it, it's, it's um, letting go of what we think we know and just playing with some ideas about how we could see this differently. That's it. We've got to bring some play, some creativity, some innovation. So these, again, all of these wonderful labels, people go, actually, I don't quite know how to do that. I don't quite know how to let go. So if we can bring another medium in that Mm. is typically different from everybody's day-to-day experience, Mm. then we can bring in some curiosity and some openness then to take a little look at doing things a bit differently. Absolutely. So I'm really interested then to, um, you know, you must very often be in situations where you're working with a system that doesn't recognise its own dysfunctionality. So (laughs) what levels of receptivity and resistance have you experienced? And maybe some examples? Yes, yes, yes. So resistance often um and as we know it's that you know almost the human condition to look to maintain the status quo to maintain the familiar that feels safe but the reality is we're living in a world that demands and requires change and we're at a time where change is happening faster and faster and faster and faster so um invariably working with whether that's individuals or you know working with you know teams and organizations they recognize that they need to change or do something differently all right um but change for them often equals loss um and so we get the resistance around people going you know it means that i'm going to lose something So one of the things that I spend my time doing is reshaping the narrative of that change. So quite often I don't even use the word change. What I've found is where people and organisations and leaders are most receptive, of course, is when they've got a burning platform. It is a matter of urgency. They've tried a number of things. Um, they they're all, all they are late to you know the party in terms of the change or initiative, um, and it's now absolutely immediate then you've got their attention but of course you know the ideal ideal is is to be able to work with individuals and organizations before they get to a burning platform before things are in an absolute crisis um and that education is important but one of the the interesting things for me is is that People often think that the architects of change within an organisation, the senior leadership team, let's say, you know, HR, organisational development professionals, they all assume that they are change agents, but they too are human beings who are resistant to change. So the very people we have as architects of change are by their nature change resistant. And so what you often find and what I find is, you know, in some of those early conversations is what surfaces is the the FOMO, fear of missing out. So what you get the copycatting, you get the and that's where some of that resistance comes, because it is the well, actually, another organization is doing this or in my network, I've seen this. And so we've tried to apply that here. So their change 
isn't necessarily nuanced in what it is that they really need. It is being driven by a fear of missing out and not doing what everybody else is doing, which inherent is you're resistant to change. So how do you how do you enable them to see that? I mean, is it is it the slime mold or you know, is it is it something else? Savannah grass, you know, <laughs> trees you know moss it's sharing these n- natural solutions with them and, and saying like i've got a smorgasbord of natural solutions here how about picking one or does one seem to solve the problems you've got and at the core it is the power of the conversation so it's about creating a safe space not making them wrong and coming from a place of curiosity, so seeking to understand what really is the fundamental problem. But the interesting thing is how nuanced that problem is for them as an individual or their team or their organisation. So the idea being is that there are lots of things out there that um, can be done to solve uh, the problem. Um, But it's, it's what I call, and my, my good friend um, David Nikolic of Abstract taught me this one, is around the trilogy of answers. What we f- I find is that some of this resistance comes because people are binary. Yes, no, right, wrong. And therein lies the problem. And as, you know, as coaches and facilitators and consultants, one of the things we recognise is the trilogy is yes, no, best alternative. And so encouraging them to go, Yes, you think you should be putting this in. So everybody's doing uh, reverse mentoring, for example. And it's the, well, you know, why is your reverse mentoring not working? Well, actually, is there a better alternative here to reverse mentoring? So what is it that you were trying to achieve? If you were trying to achieve the we're doing the same as everybody else, our competitors, our you know, other organisations are all doing reverse mentoring. Therefore, we need to do that. But it's not working for us. Then the simple thing is, and what's the best alternative to reverse mentoring? Mm. And can we take a look at how nature mentors? So I can then talk about, well, let me tell you about bamboo. Bamboo grows up in families. And how does baby bamboo and how it is mentored <laughs> by its aunties and its uncles? So we can talk about that and then use that from a place of curiosity, innovation to go, ah, actually, it's not reverse mentoring like everybody else is doing it. We can do it in a way that's nuanced to our community, our culture, our organisation. So it's very much about um, creating the conversation, um, you know, in 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 a quality way. You know, you're opening up a conversation using ways of thinking to enable some different thoughts to happen in a in a playful, open, I wonder what would happen if sort of way. And uh, if you can do that, then then basically you're opening up the possibility. It's not like you know the solution. They know the solution. Uh, and between you, this conversation can actually generate something powerful and different. And we can co-create it, can't we? The answers are there. The ingredients are all there. It's, it's, it's like making a cake, isn't it? You know, it's the same core ingredients, but the cakes are all very, very different. 
Mm. So it's about, you know, that co-creation and just using, Mm. um, you know, different Mm. ideas and ways of thinking. Now, I don't always bring, you know, biomimicry to the table. I'll have it in my head. I know that for some people, if I start to talk about slime mold and savannah grass and everything else, they'll just go, what on earth? That's just way, way too kooky. (laughs) What are you talking about? But it's still in my head. So then, um, yeah, so how do you have that different conversation then? If it's not biomimicry, um, what, what's a more kind of corporate way of having that conversation? Well, it's, it's, again, it's all about the language that um, they use, which comes back to that point I was making earlier about really listening to their language because I'm wanting them to feel safe. So very much using their language. Um, so it may well be about how do we have different conversations about this or some organizations we use the word so what's the storytellers what's the narrative Um, others it is literally you know even that feels a bit almost too esoteric it is the what's the problem to solve very hard very Mm. direct what's Mm. the problem to solve here what the outputs what the key performance indicators calling their bluff absolutely absolutely (laughs) starting where they are yeah yeah Yeah. exactly but i think that idea of you know you talked about the change makers themselves have their own resistance and um this idea of um you know this this binary view that the system with the problem and the change maker maker to fix it as opposed to you know the word you use co-creation of if we all become attuned, even, you know, I, I am part of this system that we're now working on now. Um, it's an attunement exercise. And, and the more attuned we become, the more we are already, the attunement process is 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 creating something new. It's a sort of new awareness, isn't it? And and that's where things start to to cohere. It's absolutely fascinating. It's, it's, so, it's so rich and so different to how we all kind of grew up, you know, and the, the the, the world the world we were told you know the way the way it was with hierarchy and you know bosses and employees and teachers and pupils and um you know when you think about when i listen to you talking about nature and you think about hierarchy it's, it's so so it's such a schism between those that know and those that don't and it's it's just this is such a rich uh new sort of you know fertile uh possibility uh feels yeah very very exciting very alive and we're seeing it aren't we in the uh, the old order of things the way of thinking and being is in transition right now and and covid has absolutely accelerated that we've got people turning around and saying i am not coming back to work in the same way that i did before covid happened mm. i need something else And so those organisations that have tried to apply the big stick, I want you all back in the office, you know, full time. What they found is that mass resignations, large numbers of people turned around and said, it's not for me, I can't do that. And therefore, they've had to really rethink the way in which they organise their workforce. So we're Mm -hmm. seeing the change in the, the old order and the old way of thinking, the old way of doing things. Let's talk a little bit about the zeitgeist. You know, we've been talking about what things look like in in your in your practice itself, Sue. But you know, you're now talking about 
real sort of big world challenges. Uh, I didn't use the word problems, but you know, co- you know, COVID um, has has hit us in hit us in the face like a steam drain. Um, but it's also uncovered something else. You know, it's it's almost been like a catalyst for recognizing um, maybe some of our collective traumas that that we haven't been aware of and. You know, we mentioned Thomas Hubel before. I know that you are a, a board member of the Windrush Museum. And, you know, the narrative of um, coaching and the development space is changing now from goals and performance and outputs to, to healing and uh, well-being. It, the, the landscape of, of the development world, even, even in corporate life, is changing. And... I wonder, you know, what your reflections are of this this paradigm shift that you describe, and what are your hopes for this this sort of breakdown that, that we're seeing? What 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 might it bring for us? I'm going to start, if you don't mind, with my hope. Um, I think we are living in a very traumatized world at the moment, and my hope is that leaders. Um, become far more trauma-aware, trauma-informed, and lead from a place of kindness, courage, and respect. Uh, We need a a different, more balanced, more nuanced way of leading right now. And my hope is that, um, you know, today's leaders and leaders of tomorrow are far more humanistic in the way that they lead and they influence people how do how do leaders become more humanistic because you know i i'm the sort of charismatic leader that you know i'm a best kind of intentions guy um right we need a we need a sort of trauma awareness policy and program and it, and it becomes something that I immediately i externalize how do how do i become the trauma aware human being so that everything that emanates from my leadership it is uh, authentic. Um, and it's a beautiful example of, of, of our default, our default programming, our default way of being. And the key thing is about us flipping that. And it is the look to ourselves first. So it is the, you know, as Joe was saying earlier, you know, we reshape the world from the inside out. And that is one of my core beliefs and values. Um, this asking other people to change and not doing it ourselves, you know, is disingenuous. So we have to do our own work. And I think that um, this is where coaches and mentors really and truly can come into their own. Holding mirrors up, helping people with their language, but helping people to be it rather than just talk about being it. So um, it starts with us. Um, and so we have to be aware, for example, using trauma as this lens now, that um, there's a huge amount of trauma. Nature of being human is trauma. You know, we come into this life in a, in a traumatically. Childbirth is traumatic. Physically, very, very difficult, as much as it is a beautiful, beautiful miracle. And whether that is, you know, people who have you know, natural childbirth or whether they you know, have a cesarean, there is trauma at the start of us coming in and breathing our first life, uh, you know, taking our first breath in this life. Yeah. There's such intelligence from what you've just said, Sue. And 
you know, it, it, it sort of it fills me with some sadness, but also shock in a way that, you know, this intelligence is is so powerful and so obvious. Why has is it so overlooked? Why why have we limited ourselves to living in sort of ten percent of our awareness in this sort of rational, cognitive, go-getting, empire-building mindset, leaving behind what is part of uh, who we are and, and also part of our success and, and fulfillment. How, how has it been so overlooked? And I think it's just about we, we, we've become stuck. We're back to our stuckology. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a prescription around what success looked like. Um, and that's, you know, come out of, you know, if you think historically, Industrial Revolution, World War One, World War Two, and we determined what success looked like. And we're just still carrying on with that as being the, the rule of thumb in terms of how we work. But the world has moved on. Um, and we're seeing it. Hence, we get back to, you know, this backlash where people are saying, I can't work in, you know, organizations where there is high levels of command and control and authoritarianism I can't thrive in those and you know when I was you know learning my leadership and my management you know I was you know it was about you never brought your whole self to work you didn't show weakness you had to be an authority on everything as a leader and a manager you had to be an expert you know whereas now it is though actually no 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 world's moved on and the next and our younger generations coming into the workspace are saying, I can't work in an environment where that 1970s thinking and 1960s thinking exists. So our organizations are being forced. So we're back to a burning, burning platform. We're being forced to think differently and do things differently. And I just think we've got stuck thinking that the model of success of 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago is still the model of success now. And it starts with us. So the people who I am leading, who I'm influencing, what do they need from me to enable them to thrive? And it's not, again, about binary, being better than they are today and driving performance. No, it's the, this is the goal or the objective How can I, as a leader, support you? What can I do for you to enable you to be able to deliver against that and to thrive? So it's asking ourselves a different set of questions. But most importantly, how do I need to personally change? What do I need to do? And what do I need to heal in myself to be able to do this effectively? So it's very much about um, let's do this together. Let's let's you know, get together and see what happens. Um, and, and I love that, Sue. Um, and it's been really great today listening to you share your point of view. And I think what's really stood out for me is this sense of let's all calm down here, shall we? You know, it's like it's not that hard. <laughs> it's, it's like let's look at nature and just, I mean, it, when you were talking about being at home and making cakes, you know, I thought, yes, that's what we understand right from very little. You know, we, we, are, we encounter the way problems are solved. We, the naive questions are about 
trying to make sense of it all. And you've so beautifully communicated just how straightforward it is in a way. If we can just stop and notice some things and have a quality conversation about what we might do, there's no, no pressure. You know, it's taking the pressure out of things and allowing what can happen to happen. And I've so enjoyed, uh, you know, hearing your experience of, of how that is. And I'm quite sure that's provided some very helpful concepts and thoughts for people. So both of us really want to thank you, Sue, for sharing that with us today. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.